My name is Seth. I serve as the creative pastor here at Heart of the City. Uh, We've been in a series lately called More Than a Song, and it's a series on worship and talking about what the Bible actually says about what worship is and, and what worship looks like under this new covenant. And I have a question for you today. What's in your water? We're going to be looking at three primary passages of Scripture to help answer that question, address that question. It's going to be Exodus chapter 32, Daniel chapter 3, and Matthew chapter 4. So if you guys have your Bibles, you can like take those out, you know, on your phone, on your paper, on your tablet, on your contact lens, whatever it looks like. We're going to start with Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible, second book of the the Old Testament. Exodus is primarily about God using Moses to deliver the people out of Israel. I'm sorry, not out of Israel. (laughs) Dave's like, Seth, you you better straighten up. Okay, no, out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, right, to be delivered to the promised land, the land of Canaan that would become the land of Israel. I wasn't going to say all that, but now I feel like I need to correct myself. And... For God to deliver the Mosaic Covenant. That's basically what Exodus is about, those, those two events. And so after the people have been delivered from Egypt through a series of miracles, you know, the parting of the Red Sea, right? The manna from heaven, the water coming from the rock, they come to the wilderness at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up the mountain to receive the law from God. And after all those miracles, the Israels are sitting at the foot of the mountain complaining, Big surprise. If you've read the Old Testament, surprise, surprise, Israel is complaining. So we're going to start in chapter 32, verse 1, as the Israelites bring their complaint to Aaron, who is Moses' brother and spokesperson. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Very nice, Israel. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Can someone say, "Uh uh-oh? Yikes, guys. The book of Daniel is one of several prophetic books of the Old Testament. The authorship is attributed to a man named Daniel who was a Jewish man of great influence during the time of Israel's Babylonian exile. He was in a a place of great authority. Now, chapter 3 of Daniel is about three other Jewish guys who had a lot of uh, authority and a lot of influence uh, during the Babylonian exile. And you may know their names as Shadrach, not that, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, Shadman. <laughs> so at, during this time, during their, during their lives, the king of Babylon, whose name is, I don't even want to say it now. I feel bad. I feel, I, you know what I think this is? This is God reminding me of all the times I've made fun of my dad's pronunciation of things. And the Lord is coming to me and going, no, no. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar, I even pronounced the silent D, Okay. Now, there was a time when he, he, he had a golden image that was built, and when the music played, all the people had to bow to that image, but these three dudes, who I'm not going to try to say their names again, <laughs> would not bow. And let's see Nebuchadnezzar's response in Daniel 3, verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. 
Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Ooh, Nebuchadnezzar. You better be careful what you say. Verse 16, it continues, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, and this is one of my favorite responses in all of scripture, the boldness and the bravery and the courage in this answer. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, finally, the book of Matthew is the gospel account according to the disciple of the same name. It's the first book of the New Testament. The book of Matthew's focus appears to be to show Jesus as the fulfillment of the prophetic writings of the Old Testament of the Messiah. Matthew seems to be written largely to the Jewish culture, people who would know and understand the prophecies from the Old Testament. And in chapter 4, directly after Jesus' water baptism, we're about to have water baptisms here in a few minutes, guys. Amen. Directly after Jesus' water baptism, he is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Are you uncomfortable with that? He was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Figure that out. Before his ministry was officially launched. So we find in the last of these temptations in verse 8 of Matthew 3. Sorry, Matthew 4. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Amen, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that through your word our eyes are opened. God, that our hearts are softened. That you would plow the ground, that our hearts would be good soil today to receive your truth. We pray that that your truth would be planted deep inside of our hearts and transform us from the inside out. That not one of us would walk away unchanged, that you would draw our attention, draw our hearts, draw our affections today, that we might look more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was 14 years old, we moved here to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, loved Vancouver, Washington, came here, no friends, no credibility. (laughs) No credibility, starting my freshman year of high school, and I'm feeling lonely feeling a little depressed. And then an opportunity presented itself. Now, I went to Lake City High School, and at Lake City High School, right behind the, the, one of the hoops is this area called the Den. It's the student section, right? Any of you T-Wolves in the house? Yeah. Go Wolves? <laughs> not, a lot of, not a lot of T-Wolf pride in the house. That's okay. That's okay. I understand. I'm just kidding. I, I, lo- I love Lake City. Had a great time. Had a great time at Lake City. If I, any of the bad times were my own fault. <laughs> anyway, so I'm there, and we're at a basketball game. And I see this amazing opportunity to fit in with the guys. Someone, someone had a firework. 
And they were having a hard time lighting it because they obviously did not know how to light a match. And I just wanted to help out. Just wanted to be a friend. And uh, I noticed they were having so much trouble, so I leaned over and I said, guys, this is how you light a match. And then I lit the firework. And then before I even realized what had happened, my neighbor at the time hides the firework behind his back, tries to sit on it, and you see smoke and flashes going up behind them in the middle of a Lake City High School basketball game. Now, he was immediately reprimanded as the most obvious culprit, of course. But I would later confess and have to call my parents during a church leader meeting when we had just started the church and say, hi, um, I lit a firework indoors at my high school during the basketball game, and I'm suspended for three days during finals week. We can laugh about it now, but I can tell you it was not a laughing matter that night. All right? But I thought, I was thinking about that story this week, and I go, what comes, what came over me? I, I know you're not supposed to light fireworks inside at your school in front of over hundreds of people. But there was this drive inside me to just make a connection. There was this drive inside me to just be seen as acceptable, to build some kind of credibility. I cared so much about the opinions of these, of these people that I hardly knew that I jumped into a decision that I immediately regretted and wish I could take a step back from. And it got me thinking this week about how we do that often as humans. We know well and good that decision is no good for you. And all of a sudden we find ourselves and it's done. And we just did this thing that we immediately regret. And I know that the fireworks story is a little bit lighthearted right now. But it led me to an even more uncomfortable question than, you know, why do we do things we know are wrong? Let me do this question why do we bow to things that we know are not God, even though we know well and good that he is the only one worthy of our worship? Now, we all know that second statement is true, and yet we still find ourselves, a lot of times on accident, before we even know what we've done, worshiping things that are not him. And I wonder why we do that. And so as I'm looking at these stories, these three stories that we just talked about in Exodus, in Daniel, and in Matthew, I see these four traps that people had the potential to fall into to be led to bow to things that are not worthy of worship. And the first of those traps I see in Exodus 32.1. And I just want to read. It says in Exodus 32.1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, I think one of the traps that we fall into is impatience. You know, we, we tout ourselves as the, as the microwave generation or, or the microwave culture, but people have been demanding instant results a lot longer than, than our history. There's this thing inside of us that as soon as we get to a situation where God is not on our timeline, because we know time better than, than the God of the universe, somehow we get that in our heads that we have a better sense of timing. We take matters into our own hands and we use tools like our ability to persuade or money or, or, or substance, something to get us that quicker result that we're desiring until we get God back on our time frame. And we find ourselves bowing to lesser things because God is just taking too dang long. The second trap that I see in that same passage from Exodus 32, verse 4, is the trap of lack of remembrance leading to lack of gratitude. Lack of remembrance and lack of gratitude. I'm going to read 
a part of that verse for you right now. Exodus 32, 4 says, And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, we all know that's ridiculous when we read that. It's almost like you got to read it twice. How on earth did the nation of Israel convince themselves that that golden calf that's made out of their earrings led them out of Israel? I mean, led them out of Egypt. Said it again. My goodness. We are shockingly quick to forget the faithfulness of God. And it's not just the nation of Israel. It's you and it's me. I can't tell you how many times I'm sitting there, I'm going, God, are you going to come through? Where are you? And I can just feel God like breaking out this list. And he's like, okay, Seth, bro, you're 28. You should not have dementia yet. (laughs) But we do. We battle with spiritual amnesia as human beings. I wish I could fix it. But I'm telling you, we do it. We fail to remember, and when we fail to remember, we fail to thank him. Sometimes it's so hard to remember what it was like, how hard it was, how cruddy it was living when we weren't following Jesus. We go, oh, what was that like? Was that so bad? And then we return to our sin like a dog returns to its vomit, and then we realize how nasty that life was. Quick to forget, and quick to forget, quick to complain. We bow to lesser things because we forget God's faithfulness. And when we forget God's faithfulness, we do not dwell in a place of gratitude for his activity in our lives. If you forget, you won't remember what to be thankful for. The third trap that I believe that we fall into is fear. Now, fear manifests in a lot of different ways. I want to read from Daniel 3.15. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Maybe it's fear of being awesome. Obviously, they're literally dealing with life and death. Fear of being thrown into the fire and burned up. But we deal with fear like fear of being ostracized, fear of being alienated because of our beliefs or our conduct. Feel of being, fear of being li- uh, labeled as, as, as narrow-minded or, or as exclusive or as hateful. Maybe, we're, maybe we're, we're, in, we're in fear of actual punishment that could occur because of, of our expression of faith. Fear of, of, of death and the mystery that lies beyond it. I think that's one that's been gripping our culture immensely over the past several months. A church who preaches a gospel that's about eternal life and find ourselves crippled with fear of heaven coming sooner. Or maybe it's just that simple, subtle fear. That simple, subtle fear of, I wonder what they're thinking. I wonder what they're thinking. And we find ourselves bowing to lesser things because we care more about the opinion of man than the opinion of God. The fourth trap I see in these passages is the, de- the desires of the flesh in Matthew 4, 8 through 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I, I will give you, but if you, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, the idea of kingdoms might, might, might not be the thing that tempts you or draws your attention, but let me just... Let me just say, we all have our drug of choice. Maybe for you it is power. Maybe for you it is influence. Or maybe it's wealth. Or maybe it's pleasure. Or maybe it's the sneaky one. 
convenience, security. We don't think, we, we don't, we don't think of, of those ones as desires of the flesh. We, we totally justify those ones. We just move security and convenience up the priority list and up the priority list. And we just go, well, I'm just being safe. I'm just doing what's best for my family. And we find ourselves bowing to lesser things because we are letting the desires of the flesh rule over us instead of what God warned Cain about in Genesis that sin would desire us, but that we must rule over it. The position of a son or daughter in the kingdom is one that rules over fleshly desires. Whoever told you that you were condemned to fall into patterns of sin over and over and over again needs to read the New Testament. We are meant to rule over those desires, not the other way around. So how do we battle these things, these four traps that we fall into? Well, really, this message is, I didn't want to say it in the beginning because it's not, it's kind of an archaic term and it, it, might, have, it might have put a, a weird feeling in your stomach right away, but we're talking about idolatry. And we think about idolatry, we think about a golden calf or a golden image, and we go, that's barbaric, I would never melt down my earrings and build a golden calf. <laughs> but idols can be shaped in a lot of different ways. Maybe yours looks like a rectangle in your fright runt pocket. Fright runt. <laughs> God is humbling me this morning. I am being humbled. Your front right pocket. Or maybe it's a social account where you're incessantly checking back how many likes, how many comments, how many views, how much, how, how much attention can I get? Or maybe it's, it's something simple like your place at work where you're going out of your way just when your supervisors are looking to do what looks the best even though you know that behind the scenes you don't have that kind of integrity. Idols can look a lot of different ways. And so I want you to get the idea of a golden calf out of your head and instead think about it like this. The, the great father in the faith in the early church, St. Augustine, he said, he said it like this. He said, the essence of sin is disordered love. That's the tricky thing about idolatry is so many times the things that are idols in our lives are not bad in and of themselves. They're just in the wrong order. Just like what I was saying earlier, security is not a bad thing. Convenience isn't always a bad thing. Influence isn't a bad thing, but it can get in a bad order. So these four, these four weapons for battling idolatry. Number one is to persevere in patience, to wait upon the Lord. Sometimes I just think during that time when they built the golden calf, Israel, if only you knew what God was doing on the mountain, you would have waited for the Lord in the valley. Let me say that again, 2020 church. If only you knew what God was doing up on the mountain, you would have waited upon him in the valley. USA 2020, you would have waited upon him in the valley. The second weapon we have, I think, is to make a regular practice of giving praise and thanks, remembering the miracles and mighty works of God. There is no way that if Israel had an attitude of praise and thanksgiving 
recounting the mighty works that God had just done, delivering them from slavery, that they would have gone to Aaron complaining. I don't know if you noticed this, but there is a negative correlation between gratitude and whining. Let's just examine ourselves real quick. There is a negative correlation between gratitude and whining. If you are grateful, whining is going to have a hard time in your life. If you are whining, gratitude is going to have a hard time in your life. We fight through remembering. We fight through declaring the works of God. If you declare the works of God, they will have a lot more difficult time escaping from your memory. The third weapon I see is to walk in faith and boldness when we are faced with adversity, trusting that God will see us through. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Someone needs to hear that scripture in this season of their life. We have no need to answer you in this matter. Mm -hmm. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if... And it says, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you. But if not, be it known to you that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I just want to talk to you guys about faith for a minute. It's easy to get on the page that God can save us, can deliver us from a situation, right? We're all, okay, God can, he can do all things. Take to the next level, that he will deliver us from a situation. But what about that next one? That's the one I think we have a hard time getting to. But if not. I want to ask you about the faith that's residing with you today. Do you have God, God, God can? Do you have God will? Or do you have a but if not kind of faith inside of you that says whatever it looks like, Regardless of if, it's, if, if it happens the way that I think it's going to happen. Regardless if, if I heard him the way he actually spoke. We will not bow. And the last weapon that I see, and this one, no emails on this one. Okay, church. You can send me an email of encouragement. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, if I need to be rebuked, I need to be rebuked. But please don't email me. To stand on the word, our last weapon I see here is to stand on the word of God, hiding it in our hearts and using it to counter the lies of the enemy. Jesus responded to the enemy with scripture from Deuteronomy, saying, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And in earlier temptations before verse 8, you will have seen that the devil used scripture itself to try and tempt Jesus. But Jesus knew that the scriptures were being twisted and taken out of context. Think about it. Think about it. If we do not know the word in the United States in 2020, if we do not know the word, the philosophies and the statements of this world will sound so good to our little ears that we will not see the deception in them. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to destruction. Little phrases like, love is love. Little phrases like, my body, my choice. Little phrases like, this is my truth, 
or the idea that if I disagree with you on any topic, you can just add the word phobic at the end of it to shut me up. You must be afraid of this issue. No, I'm not, I'm not afraid of it at all. I'm not afraid of it at all. I just honor the word of God over your feelings. Yeah. Or, or I disagree with you, and so immediately they go, well, you just hate me, and you hate, you hate people. Hate has nothing to do with it. You know what would be hateful? For me to not share the truth of God with you and let you wallow in your muck. That is hate. You want to know hate? Letting someone wander off into destruction, never knowing the truth of Jesus. That is hate. Hate is not a sharing of truth. Hate is a withholding of truth. Now, if we're not careful, even scriptural content could be deceptive. Hear me out. Jesus said, don't judge. Our job is to love. Take the plank out of your eye. What about grace? Now, did you hear all those things? All those things are scriptural truths that we should honor. In the right context. In the right context. And the only way we're going to know the right context is if we hide the word of God in our hearts, we meditate upon it day and night, we haga over it like a lion hagas over its prey. I am not here to convince you to have a devotional time. I am here to convince you that this book is not inspirational for, to make you a good person. That is not what the Bible is about. The Bible is daily bread necessary to your very daily existence as a spiritual being. So I, oh, you know, the preacher, the preacher on Sunday, he said I need to get more in my devotions. You are not hearing me. It is necessary for survival. What would have happened if Jesus did not know the word? The enemy will come to you and use the very tool that God has given us to lead us into divine truth. And he will twist it and he will guilt trip and he will pull you in if you do not know how to rightly divide the word of God. I'm telling you, the responsibility of rightly dividing the word of God is not only for those who stand on the platform, but for every person who claims to follow Jesus Christ. If we do not hide this word in our hearts, it is to our own peril. Now I wanna run one last thing by you. In Exodus 32, a little bit later in that chapter with the golden calf, right? God told Moses about the evil the people, the evil that the people of Israel had done, and Moses went to go take care of things. And we'll start reading in verse 19. Please listen closely. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' Moses's anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. You know what I noticed about that? Is that Moses, that was not counted to Moses as sin. What happened? He grew angry and threw the tablets where the covenant was on. 
There is a time and a place for a righteous indignation that will not bear evil ruling in a culture and evil ruling in a nation. There is a time and a place to put your foot on the ground and say enough is enough. Enough is enough. It continues, it says, he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and, the, and made the people of Israel drink it. Oh, well, that doesn't sound healthy for them. That doesn't sound like, like grace. That doesn't sound politically correct. It was the appropriate response for the situation. And I just want to ask you, on November 1st, this week in particular, do you have a reasonable response inside of you? It's a big week for our nation. Is there a reasonable response inside of you? The real question that I want to leave you with as we transition back into musical praise and worship is one that I've been asking myself all week long and honestly been wrestling, going, oh, but I really don't want to stop that. That's not really sin, is it? And it's this question. If Moses was able to see into your life, your behaviors, your patterns, and your beliefs today, what would he make you drink? What would he make me drink? What would be in your water? What are those things that you have bowed to on purpose or on accident that are not worthy of your worship?